This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. Lectures in History joins students in the classroom to hear lectures on campuses across the country on topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. This week, Grove City College professor Paul Kengor explores the tense days of October 1962 when the United States and the Soviet Union faced off over missiles in Cuba. All right, you guys, welcome. So it's good we've got, we've got C-SPAN here today, and we're going to talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and specifically Fidel Castro leading into the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we're going to hit a period of about 1957, 1959, until the Missile Crisis itself in October, October 1962. So we'll, that'll pick up a little bit from where we left off in the last class. The last class we talked about the July 26, 1953 Cut launch of the of the revolution, the communist revolution in Cuba, and that was when Fidel and a force of about a hundred to two hundred rebels launched an attack on the Moncada army barracks in in Santiago, uh, Santiago, Cuba. It didn't go very well. A, a bunch of them, a bunch of the rebels, were killed. Fidel was actually sentenced to fifteen years in prison for that. Didn't quite serve 15 years in prison. Served less than a year, about, a, about 11 months altogether. And with that, he was, he was on the run. He was in exile. He went to Mexico. His brother, Raul, as well. They would eventually come back and, and try to recommence the revolution, taking over in, in January 1959. That's about where we left off. One thing that I didn't mention in the last class, but you're going to be reading the article on this, it's the Herb Matthews piece in the New York Times. If you haven't read it yet, if, if, if you have, you've probably been kind of shocked, right, by, by this article. You're thinking, what is this? What, what, what is this piece? So Herb Matthews was a reporter for the New York Times. He wrote a February 24, 1957 front page piece for the New York Times. Major, major, major piece. And books have been written about this. Herb Matthews and and the New York Times and what they did with Fidel Castro. And the piece is called Cuban Rebel is Visited in Hideout. The article was about 4,300 words in length. Now, most newspaper articles, I mean, they're not that long. In fact, your typical op-ed piece in a newspaper, a column today is six, seven, eight hundred words. In fact, in some cases, like 500 words. So it's this 4,300-word article. And as it says at the top of the article, this is the first of three articles by a correspondent of the New York Times who just returned from a visit to Cuba. And I'll just quote a couple items from here. Matthews wrote, Fidel Castro and his 26th of July movements are the flaming symbol of this opposition to the regime. Now, that would have been the regime of Fulgencio Batista. The organization, which is apart from the university students' opposition, is formed of youths of all kinds. It is a revolutionary movement that calls itself socialistic. It is also nationalistic, which generally in Latin American means anti-Yankee. Now, Matthews says here about, about Castro, The program is vague and couched in generalities, but it amounts to a new deal for Cuba. So this was framed as a New deal for Cuba. Small N, small D. But at that point in time in the history of Americans, the new deal is a good thing, right? The new deal is FDR, the new deal. 
It amounts to a new deal for Cuba, radical, democratic, and therefore anti-communist. That's how Herb Matthews was describing what Fidel and his movement was about. The real core of its strength is that it is fighting against the military dictatorship of President Batista. But note that again, democratic, radical, and therefore anti-communist, as he put it. And he put it this way. So, so Matthews is there. He's interviewing Castro. He's interviewing the people around Castro. Senor Castro speaks some English, but he, but he preferred to talk in Spanish, which he did with extraordinary eloquence. His is a political mind rather than a military one. This country becomes one of the most mili- militarized in Latin America after Castro takes over. He, Castro, has strong ideas of liberty, democracy, social justice, and the need to restore the Constitution, to hold elections. This is 1957. Castro took over in 1959. It's 2019. We're still waiting for the elections. He has strong ideas on economy, too, but an economist would consider them weak. The 26th of July movement talks of nationalism, anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism. I asked Senor Castro about that. He answered, you can be sure we have no animosity toward the United States and the American people. Above all, said Castro to Herb Matthews of the New York Times, we are fighting for a democratic Cuba and an end to the dictatorship. We are not anti-military. That is why we let the soldier prisoners go. He repeats again, when we win, the soldiers working for Batista, we will give them $100 a month. Actually, that's about what everybody in Cuba has gotten ever since, about 100 a month. And they will serve a free, democratic Cuba. So that's the, that's the Herb Matthews piece. You can't begin to understand, and this is why so many people have talked about it over the years, how crucial that article was to helping to resurrect Fidel Castro. In fact, Che Guevara would put it this way. When the world had given us up for dead, the interview with Matthews put the lie to our disappearance. So imagine that. Imagine that. So they eventually hear Castro and a small group escaped from Cuba's eastern mountains, and they come back, they establish a stronghold, seize power. When, when Batista fled, Batista fled on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1959. I talked about that at the end of the last class. Castro forces took Havana on that day. They created a new government on January 5th, and Castro himself entered Havana on January 8th. So January 1959, and here we are six decades plus later, still waiting for those elections and that free democratic Cuba, as are the people of Cuba. Shortly after this, Castro comes to the United States. So this was April 1959. This was a 12-day tour to the United States, visited New York, where they rolled out the red carpet. I mean, it was practically, practically a ticker tape parade. Went to, went to Washington, D.C., did a number of really important interviews. So, who, okay, who's president at that point in time, 1959, United States? Eisenhower. Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower. 
Who was his vice president? Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was vice president. So he's, he's in the United States, and Eisenhower, Eisenhower wasn't totally sure exactly what to think about Castro at that point. So this idea that, that Eisenhower in particular, right, or, or the administration at that time was pushing Castro toward the Soviets, not Eisenhower, at the very least not, not Eisenhower. He was not exactly sure. In fact, you could, you could look online, you could watch Eisenhower interviewed about this. There was an old series done by ABC Television in the 1980s called The Eagle and the Bear, where Eisenhower is talking about, you know, some people thought that Castro might be the new liberator of, of Cuba, especially after the years of Batista, right? They were, they were optimistic. Castro spoke to the National Press Club in Washington, April 17th, 1959, his, his CIA director, Alan Dulles, wasn't exactly sure how to, how to respond to this either. Eisenhower, Eisenhower was bothered by the fact that he, he had read about how Castro and Che in particular dealt with opponents. And you guys are reading this in your, in your articles on, on Che Guevara. Very brutal. And this, this bothered him. Eisenhower, Eisenhower wasn't any intense, fire-breathing anti-communist. He, he didn't like McCarthy. He didn't like Joe McCarthy. I think it was James Burnham of National Review who said, uh, made a kind of a snide comment when people on the far right in the United States were saying, oh, Eisenhower is pro-communist. And I think it was Burnham who said, Eisenhower is not a communist. He's a golfer. All right? He's a golfer. There was nobody more apolitical than, than Eisenhower. So Eisenhower, wanting to try to get a sense of what Castro was all about, took his vice president. Eisenhower didn't really want to meet with him himself, so he delegated his vice president, Richard Nixon, to meet with Castro. This was April 19th, 1959. And this was probably the single, in fact, Jeffrey Safford, who wrote on this, said that of all the meetings that Castro had during his Washington visit, the one with Nixon was, quote, the most significant of these meetings. Eisenhower really trusted Nixon to give honest appraisals of people. One of, one of the reasons that Eisenhower picked Nixon was he was impressed how Nixon handled the Alger Hiss case, Hiss and Chambers, and how, how fair Nixon had dealt with that. So Nixon met with him. He wrote a memo that for a long time was, was classified. It had, there were four or five main recipients. Distribution was limited to Alan Dulles at the CIA, Christian Herter at the, at the State Department, John Foster Dulles at the State Department, Mike Mansfield, who was probably the top Latin America expert in the Senate. And Nixon said this about Castro. So they meet for two and a half hours, two and a half hours, one-on-one. Nixon wrote in the memo, Castro is either incredibly naive about communism or he's under communist discipline. My own appraisal of him as a man is somewhat mixed. Whatever we may think of him, he is going to be a great factor in the development of Cuba and very possibly in Latin American affairs generally. Pretty good prediction. He seems to be sincere. Here's that quote again. He is either incredibly naive about communism, right, or under communist discipline. My guess is the former. The former, incredibly naive. 
about communism. And I've already implied his ideas how, as how to run a government or an economy are less developed than those of almost any world figure that I have met in 50 countries. 50 countries. Also, when he's in Washington, he was on Meet the Press, which was around even way back then. Lawrence Spivak was the host, and Spivak asked Castro this question. I want to know where your heart lies in the struggle between communism and democracy. Castro's answer. Democracy is my ideal, really. It's his word, really. I am not communist. I am not agreed with communism. There is no doubt for me between democracy and communism. So that's where he was, or, or where he said that he was. So that's 1959. All right, what happened in November 1960? Presidential election, right? Between one of our guys, Nixon and Kennedy. Vice President Richard Nixon and uh, John F. Kennedy. Kennedy was an intense anti-communist. All the Kennedys were. His father, his brother, Robert F. Robert F. Kennedy. In fact, they were supporters of Joe McCarthy. Bobby Kennedy, who became attorney general under his brother, actually worked for McCarthy. McCarthy, McCarthy is godfather to RFK's oldest daughter. McCarthy dated one of the Kennedy girls. They'd be at the the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport. They were really close. They they were intense Irish Catholic anti-communists, the Kennedys and and McCarthy. So so Kennedy really wants Castro out. And by that point in 1960, so did Nixon. Nixon became convinced that, that this guy had to go. He had to be removed. Eisenhower, however, so the world doesn't know this, but the Eisenhower administration was already working on a plan, a covert action plan to try to take out Castro. But Eisenhower didn't want to act on it, especially prior to the election, because he thought it would look like they were trying to influence the election. Nixon later wrote about this in in one of his first memoir books. It's called Six Crises, which is a great book, by the way. Six Crises, really, really good. And he said when, so what did they do? Nixon and Kennedy had a bunch of debates, right? Radio, television. What's the general assessment? Who won the debate? What's the common take on this? Well, they believe that Kennedy won the television debate and that Nixon won the radio debate. Exactly. People who listened to it on the radio said, said Nixon won. People who watched it on TV said Kennedy won. So Kennedy just you know, looked better. Than Nixon, right? Looked looked better, looked better on camera. So really, one of the first TV campaigns. So Kennedy, Kennedy's out hawking Nixon on this. Kennedy's openly calling, openly against Castro, holding nothing back. Nixon later wrote this after the election was over and after Nixon lost. I knew we had a program underway to deal with Castro, but I could not even hint at its existence much less spell it out. Under no circumstances could, he be, could it be disclosed or even alluded to. By the way, Nixon and Kennedy were buddies. They were old friends. Nixon visited Kennedy on Kennedy's deathbed, one of the numerous times in Kennedy's life when he received the last rites of the church, at least a half a dozen different times. 
It's so ironic he was, he was, that he was, he was shot in November 1963. He was only, I think, 46 years old, if even that. I do my math right. But he, he was already very sick. He had Addison's disease, all kinds of health problems. And so, but but they, they, were, they were old friends. So he, he's, he, he, wants to, he wants to tell Kennedy, hey, Jack, you know, I, I want Castro out too. But you know, we've got this plan. We've got this covert plan to get rid of him. But I, I, can't, I can't act on it. The old man doesn't want to do it. The old man doesn't want to act on it. Kennedy wins the election, November 1960. Now, at this point, 1959, not so much, but 60, 61, these are big years where Castro moves toward the Soviets. And, and Cuba no longer is going to be the number one U.S. ally in Latin America. Instead, it's going to become an adversary of, of the United States. I have a list here of a whole bunch of different things. I won't go through all of them. Different indicators in you know, late 50s, 1960, that it looked like Castro was moving toward a communist pro-Soviet government. Among these, his, his brother Raul, who we knew, uh, I had a friend who did this intelligence work. We knew that Raul Castro was attending Soviet World Youth Festivals prior to this. In fact, we thought that Raul was even more of a, of a communist ideologue than Fidel was at that point. They also had, had Che Guevara as part of, part of their group. I have a whole bunch on Che that I'll probably hit in the, in the next class. You guys are going to read up on him. But he and Fidel met in Mexico City, Argentinian revolutionary, born like 1928, died in 1967, who referred to the United States as the, quote, great enemy of mankind. Che Guevara hated the United States. Absolutely hated the United States. 1960, Castro is, is um, nationalizing property throughout Cuba. We now have all sorts of documentation on this. We've had it for decades, actually. February 1960, we know that Ernestus McCoyan, one of the top leaders in the Soviet government, had visited Cuba already at that point. This is, this is from Sergei Khrushchev, who was the, the, the son of Nikita Khrushchev. Nikita Khrushchev was the leader of the Soviet Union. Sergei would become, would become his biographer. By October 12, 1959, 1959, this is Sergei. By October 12, Alexander Ivanovich Alexeyev, who was, who was a top Soviet official, he was already meeting with che, with che Guevara. And on the 15th, he met with Fidel Castro. In February of 1960, he organized a Soviet international trade exhibit. So they were, they were already having communications. And, and it looks like by 1960, there were already Soviet military advisors that were in Cuba, definitely Soviet political officials, and it looks like even way back then in 1960 that McCoyan and Khrushchev and others were already talking about putting Soviet missiles in Cuba at that point. So that's all going on in, in, in 1960. All right. So uh, 
All of that happening, here's a date for you. You got it? Ready? January 3rd, 1961. January 3rd, 1961. That was the date that the U.S. formally severed all diplomatic relations with Cuba. So if you're looking for a kind of a flashpoint, January 1961. Now at that point, Ike is still president, right? JFK is inaugurated a couple weeks later, around January 17th, January 20th, 1961. So JFK comes into office, and he finds out, he's trying to think what to do about Castro, wants to get rid of Castro, and finds out that the previous administration had developed a covert action plan to overthrow Fidel. What's this called? What does this become known as? Bay of Pigs. Bay of Pigs. So that's um, the Bay of Pigs invasion, April 17th, 1961, which is almost exactly two years to the day that Castro gave that interview to Lawrence Spivak and Meet the Press, met with Nixon for two and a half hours, spoke at the National Press Club. So Kennedy decides to act on this covert action plan, Bay of Pigs, which is named for Bayo de Cachinos, which was a, a special beach or, or area in Cuba. And I could spend a lot of time on the Bay of Pigs, but we want to get to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Altogether, this was a group somewhere around 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, maybe as high as 1,400, around 1,000 uh, Cuban exiles who wanted to overthrow the Castro government. And they were supported and trained by the United States. The idea here was, was that they would, they would invade Cuba at this particular spot, and there would be a series of airstrikes by U.S. forces. And, and the, the idea of the airstrikes was to clear off the beaches, clear off the area so, so that these guys could go in, have a, have a clear landing area. They could get out there. The 1,000, 1,100, 1,200 could disseminate into the area. Some of the language that was used, the hope was they could foment an uprising, get the people of Cuba to kind of join in with them. Here comes a group to help them overthrow Fidel, right? Here they come. Here are the guys to help us overthrow Fidel. Did it work? Not at all. Nasty. Wiped out on the beaches. At least 100 killed. Many of them taken prisoner. It, it was Bay of Pigs, known as Bay of Pigs fiasco. It's a complete fiasco. Complete embarrassment to the United States. The Soviets really made fun of Kennedy over this. In fact, when Kennedy would meet with Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet leader at, at Geneva in, in June of 61, and he was interviewed by James Scotty Reston of the New York Times, and Reston said, hey, how did it go? Kennedy said, it was awful. Worst moment of my life. Khrushchev rolled right over me. He thinks I'm weak. Because think about this, I mean, Khrushchev, the previous president, had been, had been Eisenhower. Eisenhower organized the, the Normandy landing. He was Supreme Allied Commander during World War II. First un unanimous Allied Commander of NATO. Ike, Ike Eisenhower, World War II hero, right? There's like Ike, Patton, MacArthur. 
and, and he's replaced by Kennedy, who's 43 years old when he was elected, and who was seen as this daddy's boy, right? This, this playboy who had, who had been bought into office in some of the first elections. So, so for, him to be, for him to replace Eisenhower, and then they tried the Bay of Pigs, and it, and, and it happened like that, Soviet officials said, we just looked at this and shook our head and said, how could a military power like the United States allow something like this to happen in their backyard and be so impotent? Because Cuba is how far from the United States, from Florida? It's like 100 miles. It's probably like 70 miles from Key West. And so close that you could swim from Cuba to the United States, right? Actually, people have done it. Most people haven't made it, but a, but a lot of people have tried it. So the Bay of Pigs failed. That, again, that's April 1961. And then the very worst possible thing happens that we were really, really afraid of. This makes Cuba even a closer ally of the Soviet Union. And what we fear the most isn't not only that, that Cuba will be an ally of the Soviet Union, but that the Soviet Union will place not just military advisors there, not just some military equipment there, but what? Nuclear weapons. That would be a catastrophe. Because at that point, it probably took Soviet missiles fired at the United States about 18 minutes to get there, firing them from Soviet territory. And at that point, now if they have missiles on, on our, our, what we call our doorstep, our backyard in Cuba, 70 miles from, from Key West, and how far to the entire East Coast? How close to Miami? How close to Washington, D.C.? I mean, you've cut that, the delivery time from 18 minutes to a few minutes. So this changes the entire strategic calculus of the, the whole competition with the Soviet Union. So the one thing you can't have, right? If they'd be communists, that'd be bad enough. But the one thing you can't have is nuclear missiles there. Cannot let Soviet nuclear missiles. So we start sending U-2 spy planes, doing reconnaissance, gliding way high up in the sky over top of Cuba, taking pictures. And then one day, October 14th, 1962, October 14, 1962, a U.S. spy plane discovered that the Soviets were building missile bases in Cuba. One of the things that really threw them off, and a, a, a very good book on the subject, was Graham Allison's book, Essence of Decision. He goes through all the different decision-making. It's, it's got to be at least 30 or 40 years old now, maybe even older than that, but it's, but it's really good. One of the things that threw off our military advisors when, when, when we saw how the Soviet missiles were arranged, they were arranged in a kind of like trapezoidal pattern, which really threw us off because we thought, well, look at that. That's how the Soviets, that's, that's how they arranged their missiles in the Eastern Bloc. They must want us to see them. And then later we figured out that no, this was just standard bureaucratic procedure. The Soviet Missiles Division or Rockets Division, that's how they set up nuclear missiles. <laughs> so nobody thought to, to shape them in a different way or camouflage them or put them under tents or anything. They just do them the way they did them in Czechoslovakia. 
So it's completely confounded. Our, our guys are like, yeah, they must want us to see them. Look at that. No, just, just bureaucracy, Soviet bureaucracy. That's the way that they, they arranged them. Okay, so there it is. There's the nightmare. The nightmare comes true. And JFK called in one of, one of the um, Soviet diplomatic officials in Washington and, and, um, and asked him, was it Gromyko? No, uh, it, but it asked him point blank. He said, are you guys placing nuclear missiles in Cuba? And the guy was shocked that JFK even knew it. He just said no, and lied to him. Just lied to him flat out. And then got on the horn to Moscow and said, he knows. He knows. How does he know? I don't know, but, but he knows. So they had to figure out what to do about this, right? What in the world are we going to do about this? He meets with his military advisors, JFK, and political advisors. He and his brother, Bobby, RFK, spend a lot of time on this. And there's debates. Some people want military action to take out the Soviet missile sites, especially because, and this is really important, right? Think about this. We didn't know if the missiles were armed. We didn't know what stage that they were in. So some people around Kennedy said, look, take out those missiles now before they're armed. And that, then we won't be able to take them out. Then we'll be in a blackmail scenario. We'll be in a situation where they could hit us with, with live nuclear missiles. RFK, others really counseled against that. RFK said, I don't want my brother being a Tojo in reverse, a Pearl Harbor in reverse, where we do a preemptive strike on Cuba and we start the war. Didn't, didn't, want, didn't want that to happen. JFK also said, and if I do that, I'll probably be killing Russians. And if we kill Russians, where does, where does that lead to? Where does that go to? So he decides instead on what? Anyone know? What's the word? A quarantine. A quarantine. Good job. You, nailed, you got the right word, too. The, it's typically called an embargo. That, people always say he did an embargo. He didn't want to do an embargo because an embargo could be considered an act of, an, of aggression and an act of war. So the phrase that Kennedy used was that they were going to quarantine Cuba, which is so kind of cut off the perimeter as, at least as much as they could with U.S. boats and any boats that would be coming into Cuba, including from the Soviet Union, would be, the United States would reserve the right, or at least try to assert the right, to try to board those ships to see if there were Soviet nuclear warheads on there. He gives, he knows that he has to tell the American public about this because this is a really, really big deal. <clears throat> By the way, Tim, the media reported it. Uh, President embargoes Cuba, right? That's the, that's the word that, that, that they use. Kennedy must have oh, great, thanks. He gives a nationally televised speech on October 22nd. So that's a big deal, October 22nd. So at that point, this is usually referred to as 13 days, right? The infamous 13 days of October. There have been films, documentaries, movies called 13 days. So this is like eight days into the crisis. So Kennedy announces that he's going to be giving a major speech on television. New York Times knew about it. 
And in fact, uh, I think it's that old Eagle and the Bear series that has one of the editors in the New York Times talking about it. They called Kennedy and said, we, we know what's going on. The Soviets have missiles in Cuba. And the Soviets said, that's right. Or uh, Kennedy said, that's right. He said, you know what I'm going to do about it? He said, no, we, we don't know. And he said, well, I'm going to call for a quarantine. And he said, but I don't want you to print that. But if you want to go ahead and print the other thing, that's okay. But I'm giving a, a nationally televised speech. So the speech, this is an amazing statement, an amazing statement. And I should, I should type this up for you guys, but I'll, I usually write it on the chalkboard. Of course, I write it on the chalkboard. You can't read it anyway. It's not legible, right? <laughs> Kennedy tells America, it shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba. Okay, so shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba. This is all one sentence. Against any nation in the Western Hemisphere. I'll type this up and send it to you, all right? As an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States. Requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. An amazing statement, isn't it? It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as what? As an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States. And how will we respond? This will require, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. So this makes you wonder, George Ball and others in the Kennedy administration would later say, I I don't even know if we really understood the the full implications of what we were doing here. But because think about this commits us, right? If you have, what happens if you have a renegade whoever in Cuba? By the way, it could have been Che or Fidel. I'll give you quotes from these guys in a few minutes. What if somebody in Cuba, even by accident, launched a nuclear missile that hit some other country somewhere in the Western Hemisphere And Kennedy's saying that will be interpreted as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union, which would mean what? So Cuba would hit, the missiles from Cuba would hit whatever country in the Western Hemisphere. Then we would nuke the Soviet Union. Then they would hit us, right, one-on-one. And then surely a missile from Cuba would then be fired against the United States and another U.S. against Cuba. And then the Warsaw Pact in Eastern Europe and, and, and NATO in Western Europe, attack against one is an attack against all. I mean, you could have a dozen missiles in the air just, just after the first round, assuming over that point cooler heads prevail. I mean, this, this, could, this could unleash the big one. Early 1960s, the Twilight Zone, old episodes, right? All the old black and white movies. People are building bomb shelters. And that week, I mean, talk to your grandparents. People went to the little mom and pop shop grocers. In those days, they didn't have Safeway and Giant Eagle and all these other places. People went there and made a run on all the different food that was on the shelves and took it home and put it in their basement. People thought this was it. This at last, here comes here comes Armageddon. Which is, so again, you think, well, Kennedy's really committing us to something there pretty major. Yet, on the other hand, think about it this way. It's also Kennedy telling Khrushchev, 
this is really serious. We're not messing around here. Take this very, very seriously. If one of these is launched, we will consider that an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. Okay, so that's October 22nd. Eventually things calm down, but with no help from Fidel Castro. I, I gave you guys a handout. Do you have the handout? This is, this is an interview, <clears throat> PBS NewsHour, that was done in 2001. And it's, it's wonderful. You have Terrence Smith of PBS NewsHour. Back then it was the, the McNeil-Lehrer NewsHour. And he's interviewing Robert McNamara. McNamara was, was JFK's Secretary of Defense. So he knew this better than anybody other than, in fact, he, at that point, he knew this better than anybody living because JFK was gone, RFK was gone. RFK was assassinated, just like his brother, assassinated in 1968. Also interviewed here is Keith Payne. So he's, he's interviewing Keith Payne and, and Robert McNamara. But do you see the subhead that says the other side? Do you see that? Go down a little bit. Terrence Smith, Robert McNamara, Terrence Smith, McNamara, Terrence Smith. Keith Payne says here, I think one of the most important messages regarding the Cuban Missile Crisis is that on the other side, there may be ideological zealots in control. He's talking here about Fidel and Che. What's interesting is what was going on on the other side. And we now know, for example, what was going on on the other side was that Castro and Che Guevara were recommending to Nikita Khrushchev that they actually use the nuclear weapons. Kennedy didn't want to nuke anyone. Khrushchev didn't want to nuke anyone. Fidel and Che did. Use the missiles, use the nuclear weapons against the United States. So here we have a very serious crisis where at least one party at the senior most levels of government is advocating the use of nuclear weapons against the United States. Now that's pain. Now McNamara jumps in, right? May I? They're talking about here the film. The film was 13 days. That's why they're doing the interview at the time. McNamara, the film shows quite correctly on Saturday night, the 27th of October, that should be, a critical moment. The 27th of October, 1962, the majority of Kennedy's military and civilian advisors were prepared to recommend attack. At the time, the CIA said they did not believe there were any nuclear warheads there for the missiles. It wasn't until 30 years later that we learned there were 162 warheads there. Wow! 162 warheads. 90 for tactical use. By the way, I love the phrase tactical nuke, right? It's like, uh, gee, tactical nuke. You know what that does? 90 for tactical use against an incoming attack and 60 for the missiles that were targeted on the U.S., which would, as was properly said, would have killed, killed, killed 80 million Americans. That's just killed. Forget about casualties, people with other problems, radiation, cancer. And that's just from those missiles there. 
Now, in response, if those are all fired, the United States is going to fire them all on Cuba. Soviet Union is going to fire in the United States. We're going to fire in the Soviet Union, back and forth, Western and Eastern Europe. I mean, this is just the start of it. 80 million Americans? You know how many died in World War II? Like 300,000. Terrence Smith says to McNamara, and 30 years later, you said that you discussed this with Fidel Castro. Yes, I was there when we learned this from a Russian general, there being a conference in Havana. Castro was chairing a meeting examining this. General Grabikov, when he retired, had been the commander of all Warsaw Pact forces in 1962. It's one of the reasons I like reading this interview, because these guys, this is good inside information from the primary sources. He said, as a young colonel, he went to Cuba in this venture. He disclosed there were 162 warheads there. I turned to Castro, said McNamara, and I said, Mr. President, I have three questions. Number one, did you know the warheads were there too? If you did, would you have recommended they be used? Number three, if they were used, what would have happened? He said, Bob, I did know that they were there, right? I would not have recommended, I did recommend they were to be used, as you said. What would have happened to Cuba? It would have been totally destroyed. He said, you and Kennedy would have done the same thing in the case of the U.S. By the way, no, they wouldn't. All right. <laughs> Smith, he saw no other way out. McNamara, listen to this religious language. No, Castro would have pulled the temple down on his head. Pulled the temple down on his head. And then Keith Payne adds, let me follow up on that because Che Guevara specifically said that he was ready for martyrdom and for Cuba as a country to be a national martyrdom. And he quotes Vice, Vice Premier McCoyan on the Soviet side. This is what the Soviets said to these two nuts in, in Cuba, right? one of which uh, college students will be wearing Che as a T-shirt this guy who wanted to nuke the United States. McCoyan said to the, to the Cubans, we see your willingness to die beautifully. We do not think it's worth dying beautifully. There's an advantage to atheism, right? right? No one wants to die, right? He doesn't want to go up in a mushroom cloud if that's all that there is. So on one side, you have McCoyan and the Soviets, who was very deterrable in those circumstances. On the other side, you had some ideological and political zealots who were essentially beyond deterrence in that case. And that's exactly right. That's where they stood. So, how did this end? By the way, here's Che Guevara speaking to Sam Russell of the Daily Worker of, uh, of Britain in 1962, November 1962. Che, if the nuclear missiles had remained, we would have fired them against the heart of the U.S., including New York City. The victory of socialism is well worth millions of atomic victims. Especially against the United States, the great enemy of mankind. By the way, these guys planned out even a, a Thanksgiving Day, Macy's Day parade attack in New York City. Not nuclear, but with conventional explosives. How did this end? Who ended it? Who do we have to give a lot of credit to here? Nikita Khrushchev. 
the Soviet leader. As one of the only times, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Kengor will compliment a communist Soviet dictator. Uh, but, but Khrushchev said, these guys are nuts. Uh, you know, maybe I imagine someday we have progressives in the United States who will rave about how wonderful Fidel Castro's Cuba is with the free health care and free education and Che Guevara, how cool he is and everything. But these guys are insane. These guys are completely insane. His son, Sergei, who is a, one of his major biographers, did a, a major three-volume biography of him. Sergei said this, that uh, he had to inform Moscow as quickly as possible, Fidel. He had to inform Moscow as quickly as possible of his decision to sacrifice Cuba. Let them be aware, as they drew up their plans, that Cuba was ready to perish for the sake of victory. The Soviet ambassador, Alexeyev, that guy who met with them way back in 1959, he was so stunned as he listened to Castro, Castro's words. This is, again, Sergei's words. When he heard Castro countenancing a first strike at the United States... Alexeyev stood speechless, frozen, holding his breath as he listened to Castro tell him, quote, it's either we or they, Cuba and the communist world or the United States. If we want to avoid receiving the first strike, said Castro, if an attack is inevitable, then wipe them off the face of the earth. Alexeyev, writes Sergei Khrushchev, was crushed by his comrades, thinking, crushed. Not waiting for an answer, as Castro started to write his feelings on paper, which Sergei said to Alexeyev, quote, seemed like he was writing a last testament, a farewell. Fidel was ready to go, go up in a giant mushroom cloud for Marxism. So Khrushchev, as Khrushchev found this out, he immediately called a late Sunday night meeting in Moscow at the Kremlin, Soviet leader did, with his advisors. They met in the code room of the Soviet foreign ministry, and Khrushchev ordered immediately, exact words, remove them, remove them as quickly as possible. Get the missiles out of there. Because these two are nuts. Get the missiles out of there. Khrushchev now felt that he had common cause with Kennedy and the United States. They would eventually implement the hotline, the red line, after this. He told Foreign Minister Andre Gromyko, we now have a common cause to save the world from those pushing us toward war. That would be Fidel and Che, hero to many American college students. Not in this room. Not at Grove City College. As for Fidel, says Sergei Khrushchev, he was furious at Nikita. Quote, Castro was mortally offended. Why? Because he had, man- he had not managed to engage in a fight with the Americans. He made up his mind to die a hero and to have it end that way. He now considered Nikita Khrushchev a traitor. A traitor. But to Khrushchev's 
<laughs> Great credit again. He got him out of there. This is one last quote from Sergey's memoirs. I think we got about five minutes left in class. I'll take some questions if you guys have questions. Sergey writes, Fidel didn't realize the consequences. It seemed to Castro that if the Soviet Union struck the first blow. All right. For the sake of this bright future, Castro resolved unhesitatingly to sacrifice Cuba, a national martyr, international martyr to communism. Cuba would perish, yes, but socialism would be victorious. Perhaps it was for this, for this minute, that he agreed without hesitation to base foreign missiles and foreign military units on the island. The motherland or death, we shall be victorious. That became the meaning of his existence. It was why Castro preserved an unshakable calm in the face of impending danger. Alexeyev guessed at Castro's sacrificial resolve, but he didn't realize how far it had gone. Cuba was ready to perish for the sake of victory. All right, so just to close this up, it ends when, when Khrushchev sends a couple notes to, to Kennedy, and Kennedy agrees with Khrushchev that Khrushchev will remove the missiles if the United States promises not to invade Cuba. And there was also a second communication where, uh, which, which called on the United States to remove missiles from Turkey. And, and Kennedy's public response was to, was to accept the first offer. And apparently, secretly, privately, they agreed to remove the missiles from Turkey. There's a lot that's been written on this. This is actually a very, very complicated thing. But they secretly agreed on the United States to remove the missiles from Turkey, but didn't publicly say that, which Soviet officials saw as a giant loss, an embarrassment to Khrushchev. They also saw the whole thing as an embarrassment to Khrushchev because Khrushchev put missiles there in order to gain a big strategic advantage against the United States, not apparently realizing he was dealing with two ideological psychopaths in Cuba who could have launched nuclear Armageddon. So eventually, Khrushchev, for this and other reasons, is pressured out of office. He left in 1964. This is pretty wild. Khrushchev is the only Soviet leader to walk out of office. All the others died in office. But one of the reasons was, was the, the humiliation over the Cuban Missile Crisis. All right, I think we're just about out of time. Any questions from anybody? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll go in the back. First, and then Tim. So, uh, were the were the people of Cuba really aware of their leaders' uh, kind of decisions to sacrifice the whole nation? And if they were, did they was the military really strong and oppressive against the people? That's a great question. The uh, here you're dealing with a with a um, society without free speech, without freedom of speech, without people freely speaking to the press. I don't know to what extent they really knew what was going on. I doubt they had. I I, I don't think they had any idea just how bad it was. And in fact, many of them up to that point had been, you know, close allies with the United States because we had such a good relationship with Cuba. But, yeah, I'm sure it, this would be one of the wonderful things if Cuba is ever freed. If there's anybody left from the Cuban Missile Crisis by the time Cuba is finally free to fully speak to the press, it'd be nice to find out from people what they were, what they were thinking at the time. I had a student who had this class 10 or 15 years ago who 
went home at Thanksgiving break and talked to her family about all of this. And her uncle told her that, um, no, her aunt said, it was a great moment for me because your uncle finally popped the question because he, th <laughs> he thought this was it. This was nuclear Armageddon. So after waiting and waiting and waiting, he finally asked me to marry him. Uh, but but pe pe people, people thought, you'll be, you'll be surprised when you talk to your grandparents uh, to see the trepidation, the, the deep fear and anxiety that people had that month of October. And you'll probably say, wow, that's crazy. Why didn't you ever tell me about this? Well, you never asked. But, but people, people thought this was the big one, the big one. Tim. What about the impact of a local level when you had, for example, there was a Soviet submarine with nuclear-tipped warheads, which actually had launch authorization yeah. uh, that almost took out the U.S. US convoys? Right. What about right. Like, the impact of those at the local level and the decisions made there? Yeah, yeah. Well, made there in Cuba? No, like on, on the military ground, like in, in the exclusion zone. Yes. And like others by local military commanders who use cool heads. Yeah. No, I mean, um, yeah, I don't know what to say, except, uh, yeah, it would be very significant too. And in fact, they were, we, we, were, we were sending huge amounts of, of, of military troops down into Florida. In fact, one of the things that, that the New York Times learned about was that people in Florida were saying, we're looking at the railroad tracks and they're just, just by the thousands, military guys coming in here. What's going on? Why, why, is all this, why is all this military coming into Florida? That was one of the things that, that had tipped off the Times and, and, and other sources. They saw what was going on, on the ground. They knew that something was, was very, very serious. Yeah. Do you think like, this event will ever happen again? I know there's a great deal of fear with North Korea. Do right. you think it could ever? Because they're not quite as close as Cuba. Yeah, see, you can see, you can see a scenario like this with North Korea. Although in North Korea's case, I don't know how it would play out differently other than maybe a very serious, credible threat by the North Korean dictator that looked like, okay, this time he means it, he's going to launch, right? And then, then how you would handle that in response. But see, this is a perfect example. If you do think that he's going to launch or he might launch, do you, do you do a preemptive strike? And if you do in North Korea, what would that be of? At least with Cuba, we knew Cuba up and down. We had been all over that island for, for decades. And so we'd have a good idea of exactly where, in fact, we knew because of the U-2 spy planes exactly where the missile sites were so we could take them out. But in the case of North Korea, we, we don't, I mean, to my knowledge, we don't even know where they are. If they're underground, if they're in buildings, if they're in silos, hardened silos, or probably not. I'm not sure exactly where they keep them. But it'd be, it'd be much more difficult to know what to take out in the case of North Korea. But the case here that's really troubling is here you had two ideological fanatics, Fidel and Che, who were ready for international martyrdom to sacrifice Cuba for the cause of communism, which freaked out even the Soviets. They just couldn't believe it. These guys in uh, Cuba, are, they're not good guys. They're bad guys. Maybe that's a good place to stop. Okay, all right. Thanks, guys. I'll see you on Wednesday. C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast is posted on Sundays wherever you find your podcasts. Listen to other episodes or watch Lectures in History Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's part of our American History programming, which airs every weekend on C-SPAN 3.